Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special episode of CTO Confessions, the next in the stories from the Amazon Tribe series. And the objective of this series is to speak to people who have led tech projects within Amazon, the Amazonians, and to shine a light on their experiences and wisdom and how their time at Amazon has defined their leadership going forward. But before we start, may I mention the sponsors who are supporting this series? Yes, CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with what they need, i.e. purpose-driven development teams for high-performance innovation and productivity. What more could a tech leader want? Please think of IT Labs as a mature and experienced tech leader's favourite off-the-shelf service tailored exactly for what they need to make their lives easier. And my name is TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, that's CTO with a little t. And I'm speaking from the UK, London, the land of hope and glory. And a special guest who's hosting this series, pushing me out of the way, is Charles Griffiths, a highly experienced warrior of a CTO. And he was the ex-tech vice president of transportation for the one and only Amazon. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited to learn and burn the wisdom he and his guests have to share into mine and yours leadership. So welcome, Charles. Welcome to CTO Confession Series on the stories from the Amazonian tribe. Thanks, TC. Great to be here again. And, and what guests have we got on this series? I, I understand we have a, another interesting person from that Amazonian tribe. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Uh, this is a good friend of mine. I, I believe we go at least maybe 20 years. So it's going to be exciting. He, he is behind so many things at Amazon. Uh, that people had no idea where they came from, but they're going to learn it today. Excellent. So I will leave the I will leave the floor to you. Hello, Joe. I'm going to be listening. I'm going to be all ears, and I'm look forward to hearing your story. Thank you, TC. So uh, the mystery guest for this week is uh, Joe Trellin, and uh, Joe, uh, great to have you here this week. Well, it's always good to see you, Charles. <laughs> I, I do want to say one thing, though. I as we talk about um, the Amazon tribe, uh, I keep on thinking of Obidose, right? Uh, uh, that was right. That was named after the mouth of the Amazon or it was an yes. operating system yep. with it in the old days. So uh, I think you have to be a true Amazonian to know Obidose. Yes. And, and there are a lot of other classic references as well that go back uh, where we were really playing on that, that theme of, uh, Amazon early on, but yes, that's a, that's a great tech reference. Um, let's talk a little bit about your origin story. I like to start for people that are unfamiliar with, with uh, any of our guests, kind of like a, kind of like a Marvel uh, movie here, which are all the rage, right? And go through what was Joe's Amazon origin story. And you're a, you're a repeat offender at Amazon. So uh, yeah. you have had many lives. Yes, I I, uh, I was a recidivist at Amazon. Uh, <laughs> um, I I started at Amazon in my forties. Uh, this was my third career. Um, I uh, worked in the music business for the first ten years of my career. Then was a, a writer and a taxi cab driver in New York City, and uh, went back and got a computer science degree and. Um, uh, work startups and product and tech and uh, somehow made it to Amazon in my 40s. 
and had like a lot of Amazonians back then. I started in 2004, I think. Like a lot of Amazonians back then, we had peculiar and non-traditional roots to where, you know, to getting there. And uh, I'd say the biggest difference between then when I started and then when I left in 2015 was the reasons people came to Amazon. You know, it, back in 2004, when we were all on, on the hill in PacMed, um, you had to really want to be there. There was really no cachet at, for working at Amazon. You know, you had to believe in and you had to be like-minded. It was a bunch of like-minded, high-minded people. And uh, when I interviewed folks like you, I was a bar raiser. So I interviewed, I don't know, 700,000 people in my, <laughs> my time yep. there. Right. And uh, well, they kept track. You could actually see the number, right? Um, uh, I used to tell people when I was trying to convince them to come to Amazon uh, that there was a low asshole quotient, you know, <laughs> and uh, and it was it was very much like that. Uh, everyone was so busy. There was no pride of ownership. Um, and uh, it, it was a. It was a club for the disenfranchised, for the smart disenfranchised. It was a, a club for all of us. And uh, I, um, you know, and I, I fit right in, you know, uh, my circuitous route there made a lot of sense when I got there, you know, um, being non-traditional and peculiar was a good way to start at Amazon. And, and in fact, that was one of the themes that we just were talking about. Uh, Amazon always talked about peculiar ways uh, was one of those uh, sounding blocks. Um, just one other footnote, you mentioned uh, we could keep track of uh, our recruiting and and in fact, we could, you could basically keep track of just about every candidate you, you ever thought about would be in this tool and the tool was called MRT. You remember the, the uh, name? Matt Round. Matt, Matt Round, the Matt Round tool. Exactly, MRT. And uh, a lot of people never, I, I know you know it, uh, but a lot of people never knew and they tried to replace it at a certain point. And there was they so much pushback it. because like everything else that Amazon kind of built, it was so incredibly powerful and had its own peculiar ways, but uh, was so effective in, in capturing the, the way that Amazon uniquely did interviews and still does. Right. right. Um, let's, yeah. Let's step back for a second. When you came in, I believe one of your first roles was with the 3P business. And, you know, now this this concept of a marketplace is is very common. You know, it's it's been proven. But at the time it was it was a very interesting concept. And it was even more interesting in the sense that Amazon was one of those sellers on the platform. And uh, talk a little bit about that and how unusual that was and and how you know, that idea even evolved or, or the inception of that idea, if you recall. Yeah, well, um, when I when I first started in 2004, um, Marketplace was really, really nascent. And um, the, the primary concept of Marketplace, at least for me, was that, you know, Bezos felt that doing e-commerce was really hard. And he wanted to package the technology of e-commerce for other companies. And that's when Toys R Us had a deal and Target had a deal. And, you know, they weren't, because of the newness of the technology, they weren't the most favorable deals for Target and Toys R Us. But 
these guys just knew they needed to get their foot in the water and i think they were just opted for speed eventually target obviously replaced amazon but um so the first thing i was there for was to build a small to medium business platform to allow um merchants like diane von furstenberg to cre quickly create websites using the Amazon technology. Um, the problem was that um, this was before AWS, so uh, there really were no services. Everything needed to be done, you know, with uh, a chisel and marble and, uh, you know, and uh, soldering irons in order to, in order to put these uh, sites up. So the economies of scale really weren't there, um, but, um, you know, I, for at least for the small to medium business ones, I launched the first non-Amazon products, um, you know, uh, companies using the Amazon technology. Um, I guess um, Ian would say Target was the first, which probably was true, but that was a whole separate stack, right? Target was built as a clone of the Amazon stack. Uh, it was basically um, when I, uh, uh, you know, a, di uh, a divergent, a, di a divergent cl clone of Amazon. Similar this to Spencer and, right. and some of the other major uh, website impl implementations that ended up also getting some of their own dedicated technology, which of course led to changes in the not right. so near future after, you know, near future after that period of time. Well, right, and, and, and you know, um, when it comes to divergent uh, paths of technology, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about uh, having to merge platforms and the pain that that caused in marketplace in my, in my second go around, but- Right, we're gonna uh, hit that in a second. Um, before we go there, one thing I did wanna also hit, in addition to 3P, you know, you were also, leading a business within Amazon, right? The music business as that got started as well. Well, it not got started. I would say it was mature. I was the, um, I was what they called the category manager. So I was responsible for the top, at that point, the top line revenue of that business. As a retail owner, I guess I should have. A retail up. owner, yes. And so music was one of the first categories at Amazon. And when I took it over, Amazon had yet to get into digital. This was 2005. Right. And so I was pretty much focused on physical CDs, which had at that juncture, maybe four good years left. You know, as Amazon was creating uh, an increasing share of a diminishing market when it came to CDs. And um, I'd left uh, in two, my first time I left was 2006, I think, or 2007. And I went to Standard and Poor's and ran their uh, their engineering group there. You kind of jumped into you went to Standard and Poor's and kind of to do something a little bit different. But you got you got you know just like uh, many uh, um, an Orthodox organizations. Once you're in, you can't get out. You came back, yeah. and this was the time of of 3P going big. Talk a yes. bit about that. Well, um, uh, gentlemen, I worked with when I was in the music category, uh, was asked to lead a 3P. Um, there was, uh, 3P wasn't, at least in the eyes of Jeff Bezos, wasn't being run properly. And so the person who 
was running it at the time um, was asked to move aside and just take a technology role. And they brought this gentleman in to run all of 3P. And since we'd worked together previously and because I had some experience previously in 3P, he gave me a call and I came back. And, um, you know, the marketplace was very small back then. Um, I, I think it was maybe 30 or 40 people. Um, and uh, by the time I left in three years later, it was over 400. You know, and it uh, and this gentleman did a terrific job operationally, and um, it turned into Amazon's largest generator of free cash flow. That included FBA, which was you know, fulfillment by Amazon, which was not under the purview of what I of what I did. But uh, you know, it, the nice thing about um, marketplace is it's a shopping mall. The margins are fixed right? Um, you don't care whether a seller, I shouldn't say you don't care. It was irrelevant to the Amazon bottom line as to whether a seller was making money or not, right? Amazon got its eight to 15% based upon the category. Um, and uh, that was a great way of driving predictable revenue. Um, there's an interesting story uh, about that. Um, so I was responsible for, um, you know, as we grew this, I was what they called the shipping czar. I was responsible for all of all of seller fulfillment. Uh, I seem to recall this. There might have been some some interactions we had back then. Yeah, I was working with some some interesting folks at transportation who really made me look good. I don't remember. I don't remember who they were. Uh, uh, Chuck, maybe Chuck something, Charles something. <laughs> I, I think it was it was probably more the uh, portfolio of of uh, services that were being expanded at that time to just grow that business. I mean, I, I not not to, to kind of uh, make it too annoying for, for listeners, but there is just such an amazing portfolio of things that the 3P business identified and wanted to do that unlocked that that growth, right? That growth didn't just happen, you know, by marketing or, or by, you know, um, accident it happened intentionally and a lot of the the programs that you led uh unlock those and for people that that don't recall or or you know now take these things for granted some of those were just basically you know the the things that you need as a merchant the ability to set up your listings quickly all of that type of work got modernized during that time and also a number of shared services to to actually incentivize what what shopping carts are doing now, you know, to continue to lower the bar of entry into e-commerce was being done through this this particular platform that you were um, really I would call you more the products are for that that platform because you were basically running just a, a complex array of many different types of programs of which shipping was one of those sets in there and trying to push those through a number of teams across Amazon which is actually one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you, we have, we've talked about many different businesses working in parallel and you had a very large team within the merchant uh, fulfillment area and the merchant tech area, but you needed to, to continue to get additional teams to buy in and uh, effectively help enable some of these programs. How did you make that happen and how did you appeal to them and, and what, what things did Amazon do to make that happen? 
That's a really good question. And I think, um, you know, as you look at to the product um, portion of the technology role, you know, the uh, for, for tech leaders out there, product and technology, you know, are, are sometimes shades of gray. Um, and uh, often product folks need to uh, influence because the resources are not under their control. And so um, what I was responsible for was seller fulfillment. And seller fulfillment was a broad brush to your point of which shipping was a portion, right? Returns were another portion of that. I can tell you a story about that if we get to it. Um, but uh, so to give an example, um, I was responsible for creating all of the metrics that didn't exist to determine whether sellers were actually meeting their customer commitments, right? Um, when I took over, we had no idea whether sellers were doing a good job or bad job fulfilling, right? So um, we had to uh, create all of these metrics and uh, look behind the curtain uh, at these seller shops to figure it out. Now, in order to do that, I needed to enlist the help of a lot of other uh, other areas of the company. And um, I would go to folks like uh, Charles, who was running, um, you know, an area in transportation at the time, you would know better than me. All I know is I went to Charles for pretty much everything, uh, whether he ran it or not. And um, and I would basically make the case as to why this was important for Amazon and for them in addition to what we were doing. And that's where the Amazon high-mindedness came in, right? People really, one of the things that made it special were people really did care about the customer and doing right by the company first. Of all the companies I've worked at, the culture back then really was um, more of, a, of an external locus than an internal, right? People were concerned with what they were doing. Was it whether, uh, let's go back. What were they doing the right thing for the customer first and Amazon second? And they felt that if they did that, their career would benefit, right? In most companies, people are worried about their career first. How will this make me look? And people felt that, hey, it'll make me look good if I check those two boxes. So my job was to make compelling cases for the customer and for Amazon. And, you know, and I would sit there and talk to your buddy, Mike Baskaran and, and, and others. And I would have to dovetail with some of the programs that they had going. But if those programs were well designed, which a lot of them were, I was able to make the case how this was um, would amplify what they were doing, right? And so a lot of it was, um, you know, internal salesmanship and evangelism uh, to get groups that weren't committed to what I was doing to get it done. The other problem was that um, until we left, until towards the end of my tenure there, um, Marketplace was looked at as a redheaded stepchild in the in the company. Retail looked at it as inferior because they felt that you know, and it was a bit of a bit of arrogance. They felt that merchants couldn't fulfill products as good as Amazon, 
And that feeling from retail uh, cascaded through the rest of the company. So when I would go to transportation, uh, people who maybe were less enlightened than Charles would give me pushback and basically say, well, yeah, that's great, but nobody gives a crap about about marketplace, which <laughs> was true. It, it did change though when when the uh, the earnings came in at a certain right. point, it became recognized that hey, this is a juggernaut. Um, that's right. The, the one thing I want to hit too, Joe, you mentioned as a bar raiser bringing in talent, a lot of what you accomplished too. You built a very strong team. And I want to talk a bit about some of the mentoring and some of the people that you brought in and, and maybe, you know, a few uh, success stories, right? Because I think that, as you mentioned, initially, it was almost like an island of lost toys, right? Where a lot of people, <laughs> I also came in in my 40s and, and uh, spent uh, my time there well after, you know, um, I, I'd done things that I should know better than doing again at Amazon. But, um, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of people that you brought along that became that next generation of leaders in different parts of the company because you were in different parts of the company. Talk a bit about that and, and your approach and, and guidance as a leader and how you develop those people. Well, um, you know, I, I, you'd have to ask them whether they feel felt I, I helped develop them. Uh, the fact that some of them still speak with me, I guess, bodes well. But, you know, I don't know what they say when I'm not around. But um, the I looked for, as a bar raiser, you really get a sense of people, right? Um, you know, and the process of interviewing people is, uh, Amazon used to feel it was job one right? You, you, it's hard to recover from bad hire. It's the future of the company. And you probably in other episodes have talked about that, that bar raiser process. So I, I won't go, I won't go back over that. Um, but in dealing with Amazon, uh, the number one thing I looked for in people was the ability to deal with ambiguity. Um, folks who were able to interpolate and extrapolate as opposed to recite did well at Amazon, right? So I, I was um, on the teams that interviewed the MBA candidates, right? Which was a trip because I don't have an MBA. So I would, I would be going to Harvard and all these other places that, you know, I was surprised they even let me on the campus with my, uh, with, with my background. And, uh, you know, I'd interview these guys and I noticed, you know, two primary types of folks who do well enough to get to those types of schools, people who memorize and people who think, right? And some do can do both. Um, but folks who memorize just don't do well at Amazon. Folks who think do. Because people who memorize only don't do well in abstract and ambiguous situations because they're looking for a roadmap, you know? Uh, and people at Amazon, because you were building something new, you know, Amazon, I guess it's different today, but back when we started, Amazon would hire athletes and apply them to programs and problems that they had never done before. And they would bring this outside view and their problem solving skills uh, their ability to uh, think outside the lines of the box or think outside the box um, created the innovation that people take for granted today. And so 
you're going to be told things like get this done you're not going to be told how to do it right and folks who are able to think that way i found to be the most effective amazonians and i would hire people with those skills and i would manage them in an appropriate way um i'm a big believer in tenant driven decision making and um I would say to them, look, let's agree on the on the bumpers and within those bumpers go crazy, right? And yep. then um give me some updates because I don't I didn't want to they're there for a reason. I didn't want to stymie them, right? Because I think a certain way. You know, I, if I was able to think like them, I probably would have been in Harvard too, but I I, I wasn't. <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned the tenant uh driven approach because Amazon was very much about the culture and about the uh specific um leadership tenets right and and formulating you know and evaluating particular approaches in a way that I've never seen at any other company before or since tell me a bit I'll put you on the spot here give me a good Jeff Bezos story that you have where he uh, effectively uh kept the culture going right yeah. where every because there's so many situations i saw where you know you could go through 300 reviews literally 300 reviews to present to him and all of a sudden he'd find something so painfully obvious that you wondered how did we all miss that right what about the uh, time when you uh, and myself and, and a couple of other people from the team met with jeff on uh, introducing scheduled delivery for oh. merchants Oh yeah. We well, spent a lot of time preparing for that meeting and it was one of those rare a lot of people think that Jeff's always surrounded by, you know, or was surrounded by, you know, 30 people like uh, you know, like a king, but Jeff was very much a one-on-one -on -one person in a lot of situations and it was really a room with just maybe four or five of us, right, where we presented this this paper to him. Yeah. Um this was uh, a combination this is a combination of stuff. The biggest the biggest thing we were pushing back then, it was scheduled delivery, but it was also same day delivery, right? Right. And right. I I had the belief and I guess this was 2010 or 11 maybe, something around that, there. Yeah. That last mile delivery was the next big thing. And I, that was not a feeling that was shared around the company at that time. Um uh you were in that meeting, uh the head of Prime at the time was in that meeting and then my boss and his boss uh were in that meeting and then Jeff. Um and maybe Greg Hart I think was in that meeting who was Jeff's uh, shadow at the time or tech advisor. Um and what's interesting is is i was a i believed in food delivery this to me this was all about food delivery i felt that um you know it was an easy it was an easy crossover to the shopping mall approach uh to get local merchants who were already delivered right it was just an extension of 3p and you know i've always believed as i when i've been responsible for businesses is that never underestimate the laziness of consumers you know if i can get something faster and easier without leaving my couch there's a certain amount of appeal to that how much that's worth to people well that's the the 1000 question but 
Um, the guys who I reported to didn't like that idea, but they knew that Bezos was interested in it. So they went in there with the concept of uh, large and bulky as opposed to food for same day delivery. And Bezos immediately threw that out. And uh, so now I'm sitting there with the paper that I didn't want to write in front of me. And um, this is why I'm not mentioning the names of any of his other people in that meeting. Um, well, I'm guilty too, because I was there, so. <laughs> well, well, you, but you weren't, you weren't responsible for telling me not to present what I wanted to present, right? And, um, and Bezos basically looked at these folks and in so many words said, why are you wasting my time? And um, it, at which point I piped up and said, well, what if we look at it this way? And then I talked about the growth I saw in Grubhub, which was growing like 11,000% a year. And I talked about food and sundries. And then Bezos became very interested. Exactly. He started talking about how when he was at D.E. Shaw, how, yes, he used to um, order liquor and, you know, after hours. And he, he actually became quite interested. And to your point, he just honed in on the key issue that I was thinking of. And what he said was, this is interesting. Would Amazon ask for tips? That's the first thing that... That just shows you how his mind worked because he went directly to the customer. He went to Amazon's reputation and trust with the customer. Would we be looking, would we be seen in a different way if we were asking for gratuities? But he liked the idea and he understood where I was coming from. And, you know, despite all of the, the gyrations that went on top of my original idea, he really drilled into not only the idea that I was thinking of, but the real crux of the issue, right? Which was how do the customer perceive this? And um, it, it's not surprising to me that uh, a year after I left, you know, Amazon adopted this. Um, but that was the way it was with a lot of the stuff, you know? Um, I was for all intents and purposes, responsible for the three-year plans in Marketplace. Um, and uh, I would say that 70 or 80% of the ideas that I presented in the three-year plans were adopted either while I was there or after, right? There's a legacy, those things don't go away. You know, things that were started um, while I was there, the concept of allowing third-party sellers to actually be Amazon Prime sellers using their own fulfillment came from me. I actually met with Oneto and Wilkie about that. And But, you know, once you put the idea in the water, it's all about execution. These things, you know, you know, take on a life of their own. So while I started it and created the building blocks of it, I didn't implement it. I was gone. Um, but yeah, the... Um, the process of innovation at Amazon is an interesting one. And when you go in front of Bezos, to your point, it's, ama it's amazing how incisive and how much he cuts to the heart of it, which basically expedites the process. And I think, I think just rolling back to, you know, your discussion about MBAs and so forth, 
the fact of the matter is that one of the things that was encouraged during that time was to be fearless, right? Failure was not considered career ending, right? And and many times these ideas weren't right for the time, but were right for Amazon down the line, whether it was things like, you know, contractor delivery of of, uh, shipments, right? That was discussed for years. Uh, and took time for the uh, the world to catch up with the idea, right? Some of the things you just described about um, restaurant delivery and so forth, look, that's, that's standard fare. And in fact, if we had gone a bit further, think about where we would be in terms of the retail landscape right now in the U.S. post-COVID, because a lot of those small businesses have suffered. But if they'd had that vehicle built the way that you originally had been talking about it, we might be looking at a different um, a different world, at least in the U.S. So before we finish off on your Amazon career and then go to post Amazon, which I think is is very interesting as well, what would you say your your greatest success was at Amazon? Because there's so many different things to choose from, and many we didn't speak of. Well, um, you know, it, it, it depends upon how you look at success and. I'm sure, and you know, I was there for eight years, so you forget things. But um, my greatest success, and this is going to sound trite, was really the people I met. I've never been around such a collection of smart, high-integrity people. I mean, if I had to say the one thing I walked away with from Amazon was that, and recognizing those people exist. If you're talking about the things that I accomplished, you know, I am I am very proud of creating the infrastructure around seller fulfillment. I mean, it was it was nothing, and we started from not even having a report to creating a well-oiled machine. And the guy I worked for really had a lot to do with that. He was really great operationally, um, and I learned a lot from him. But I, you know, I I was a I was responsible for a lot of that. One of the things that I'm proud of that we delivered uh, was what we did with returns. So um, when when I took over, if you return something to a marketplace merchant, you had a completely different process than if you return something to Amazon, right? Which really reduced the effectiveness of buying something from a marketplace merchant because my premise was the reason people will choose Amazon over a marketplace merchant was trust. And one of the things you're trusting is in a seamless return experience. So uh, I worked with um, the SVP on this one and we created a patented way in which to abstract the underpinnings of the return process and make it seamless to a user to return something the exact same way to a merchant as they did for Amazon. And um, the thing I'm most proud of with that was um, the folks that I was working with told me it couldn't be done. And we sat in a room and, you know, I made some success, you know, I took, I, the engineers at Amazon where I always felt were smarter than me. So I never ever reached into my bag of engineering tricks because I felt that it would only get me into trouble. So, but in this particular case, I, you know, I, I, I cr- uh, created an object model uh, for a return object and an architecture, which I presented to them. And they were like, wow, that could work. And 
that's how we um, came up with this and was patented. So, um, and the fact that it has touched, I don't know how many millions of people since it was launched, you know, it's, it's not something that in life is the most important thing, but my, my time at Amazon, it was, it was pretty, pretty satisfying. And I, I think it was critical to addressing one of the biggest challenges for 3P, which was customer trust, right? That right. Was, that was a, a huge thing. Let's take the flip side of that, Joe, because as we <laughs> said, you know, this is, this is a uh, fearless culture. What was the greatest failure you think you had at Amazon? And more importantly, what did you take away from that? And how did it change your style or your, your technique going forward and carried you into your post Amazon life, which we're going to talk about? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a really good question. Um, the thing about Amazon is, is that, you know, if you make the right decision, if you make the, the best decision you can, you can giving the data that you had at the time, people were not going to kick you about things that didn't work out right. Um, I would say, um, you know, I would, I would say this, um, probably the biggest thing I learned from, uh, was the pushback I received in that story we talked about previously, when I went in with the idea about, you know, selling food, you know, the same day delivery, the fact that the, my bosses weren't, didn't look good in that meeting affected me negatively. And it taught me a very valuable lesson about when working with smart people, talented people, it's really important to um, really do more homework when it comes to uh, contingencies. You know, I probably should have been better prepared for the negative response to allow them to save face, right? And um, it really, forced me to, you know, the, Amazon was the first corporate job I ever had, you know, and it wasn't much of a corporate corporation in those ways, but it was starting to become a big company then. And, um, and it forced me to grow up a little bit, you know, and recognize that it's not only what you say, it's the way that you say it. And that's probably counterintuitive, a counterintuitive response when you think about the type of responses people would usually give you at Amazon uh, saying, well, I was wrong, but I made, you know, I used the right data and people walk, walk past, move past it. Um, that's what jumps out at me is how I could have been less naive. I'm sure if I had more time to think about this, I'd say, oh, I should have mentioned that. I should have mentioned that, but this is the first thing that comes to mind. Awesome. So TC is going to take it from here and kind of talk a little bit about uh, your career post Amazon. And I, I think one of the things that'll be interesting will be to hear how Amazon informed, you know, some of those successes as well, because you, you did some amazing things post Amazon as well. Well, thank you, Charles. Excellent. Thank you, Charles. That was a that was brilliant. Both of you, I was, I was all ears listening to that and some fantastic. So, so Joe, I, I'm really a question that came up actually while I was listening was 
what what was the difference between other places where you've worked and the time at which you worked at Amazon, the pace at which the leadership worked and the pace at which people got stuff done. What was that like? I'm impatient in general. And um, Amazon's pace suited me, right? The, The quality of the minds and the character of the folks at Amazon suited me. And so you were able to um, really uh, move directly towards solutions at Amazon. You had people who wanted to work as quickly as I did. Um, when I went to a place like NBC Universal, it was the antithesis of Amazon. You know, I, I, I've learned a hard lesson in that when people bring you in to affect change in an old organization, mm. run. You know, and that's what they did at NBC Universal. They brought me in to be what they called the tip of the spear to change um, a staid culture into an Amazon-like culture. And, you know, people don't like to change and, and there wasn't a lot of incentive. So I found that um, either startups or small collections within a large company of like-minded folks are the only places that I can work these days, uh, given my great experience at Amazon with that style of personality. That's fantastic. Yes, because you mentioned something around uh, creating the bumpers and allowing people to kind of uh, work work in that kind of arena, almost like a, a sandpit, you know, to kind of do what you needed to do. Right. So in service of, of our audience again, and our tech leaders out there, hopefully kind of avidly listening and wanting some tips, what they can do to kind of, create this kind of environment that people are given that full uh, autonomy to kind of uh, do stuff and get stuff done and be innovative yeah well that's 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 the the key question you see the um it really starts with hiring you have to hire people who can thrive in that environment and that goes back to at least what was effective for me was hiring people who dealt with ambiguity well how do you spot that ambiguity? Well, it's it, it, it's the type of questions you ask, right? Um, I I would ask, you know, you ask two types of questions that I've learned actually as a bar raiser. I'd be interested in, in Charles's opinion on this as well. I would go down two paths. I would ask um, hypotheticals and see the way people would approach something. Right. And that would give me an insight into their thought process and their ability to uh, interpolate. And then secondly, I would ask them to specifically go into how they went about the achievements that they listed on their CV, Mm. right? And so when somebody says, I did X, you really get a lot when you say, okay, walk me through how you did it, right? How did the decision occur? Who was responsible for that decision? What was the first, rough spot that you needed to smooth over. Now, if somebody really was responsible the way that we're talking about, they won't have to really go into the recesses of their memory to to remember stuff about something that was so important in their career. Yeah. But when you get people who are saying we and us, you know, made this decision, it's not in that case, it's not about teamwork. In that case, it means other people were making the decisions. Yes. Right. And so you're getting a sense of the role they played and the way in which they made decisions in the past. And then, and so I would drill in, I'd peel off the layers of the onion. I would, so they would say, I would say, okay, so 
it sounds to me like you had this problem and you went into X decision. Walk me through your thought process. I said, there's no right or wrong, but walk me through your thought process as to how you came about making that decision. And you really get a sense as to how they think. Nice. And also whether they're, and whether they're bullshit. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's great. It's, it's uh, the language people use, and and I, I love this idea of uh, peeking under the kind of uh, thinking path that people are taking, if there is any thinking path be, uh, behind what they're kind of presenting. So, Charles, did you want to add anything to this idea of hiring and getting those hiring people right? I, I think Joe nailed it dead on. I mean, it's about what did you do, not what did your team do, or what did you accomplish under that role. The other piece is, of course, the problem-solving aspect, right? Were they able to uh, be nimble? Were they able to handle that ambiguity, right? A lot of what we looked for, to be quite honest, or that I looked for specifically, especially with non-engineering roles, was that we weren't hiring a one-trick pony. Somebody who was great at one thing, and uh, three weeks later when the, the role changed, they would be uh, orphaned and, and they would be on the extinction path, right? So uh, I, I wanted to make sure to do the, the right thing for the candidate and make sure they were gonna be a good fit for Amazon. And therefore also looked at, you know, what is their total potential? Not necessarily just what they'd done, but what could they do? Yes. Because Joe said, you know, we were a collection of, uh, you know, unwanted toys or, or eclectic <laughs> and eccentric toys. And yeah. so a lot of that draws on that collective experience, which, which isn't necessarily stated on a resume. It's stated inside that person's mind. And if you can tap that during an interview, you, you end up with a great candidate. Fantastic. I'm going to add something there as well. Interviewing itself is a big skill. And the role of a bar raiser is not only to ensure that the processes are followed and the person meets the, the company's bar, but it's also to ensure the integrity of the interview. You would be surprised how a bad interviewer will make um, assessments and draw conclusions on things they shouldn't, right? A good bar raiser will go in and say, why did you feel that way? Walk me through. And so as you, you know, being a tough interviewer isn't necessarily being an asshole, although a lot of people would say I was at least when I started doing doing bar raiser uh, stuff. But um, it really is being fair and giving somebody a chance to understand the question. Right. And not just dismissing them capriciously. Yeah. And so um, that integrity, I think, is the other portion of the bar raiser that when I hear people talking about bar raisers, it usually isn't brought up. Mm, I like it. And and as a final note, the hiring the right people, I loved when you mentioned the kind of peculiar ones, the eccentrics, the people that didn't quite fit in elsewhere. I think I would have been an excellent candidate for this, just just kind of a, as a side <laughs> mention. Uh, and, and it's great to kind of hear that as well, because I, I guess there's a lot of uh, aspiring tech leaders out there, uh, aspiring people that are wanting to get into tech, to know that, you know, having that way of thinking differently, that way of doing things slightly off the uh, beaten track is a welcome thing and actually was a, a great foundation for success for Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, it, and it's also as, as Amazon became um, more advantageous to put on your resume, right? Where it was less us trying to convince people to come and more trying to 
manage the floodgates of people who wanted to come, that changed. That to me was the first, uh, for lack of a better term, that's when the barbarians met the gate, right? <laughs> that, that's when um, the culture started to change. Right, excellent. Well, it, Joe, uh, and obviously Charles, our kind of guest host here, it's been wonderful having you on. Uh, I've got loads of uh, follow-on questions, but in, uh, we haven't got the time, unfortunately. So thank you, Joe, for your time. And, and of course, thank you for hosting this, Charles. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow, what an amazing journey that Joe has been on. To think that Joe's ideas and implementations have had such a huge impact on Amazon's business, but most importantly, us, the consumer. So what were your key takeaways from the podcast? These were mine. Number one, get moving on your ideas. Sometimes the part we need to play in the process of innovation is to be the spark that starts the fire. Get your ideas from concept into execution and let the process begin. In Joe's own words, once you put the idea into the water, it's all about execution. These things then take on a life of their own. My second key takeaway is about the culture of Amazon. And there's a lot of talk about the culture of Amazon and how it created the success that it's living now. A culture of being fast paced, requiring a particular kind of person that is able to know their stuff, the skills, and then be able to operate in an ambiguous environment. As Joe said, these are the kind of people that struggle to fit into more conventional work environments, a place maybe for peculiar people, the eccentrics, the thinkers, the dreamers, the ones that can take an idea and make it happen without being told how to make it happen. My third and final key takeaway is about customer centricity and how the culture and leadership particularly that of Bezos' skill, to be able to home in on an idea, whether it would work or not, relating it directly back to the customer, getting to the crux of the problem and how it will directly impact the customer through the eyes of the customer. I know I keep saying it, but I'll say it again. There are loads more key takeaways, but I've only got a limited time to jam them into an allotted time. So thank you again, Charles. And of course, thank you, Joe. Your story is an inspiration to all us tech leaders. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.